Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. There's been so much talk about Shohei Otani. Remember yesterday, Yonder Alonso came on the program. And we talked about for all the things that have said about Otani or have been said, all the talk about Otani, it's not still it's still not nearly enough. Like you want to know how good this guy is? I'll tell you how good this guy is. This guy is so good. He made me actually tune in to Home Run Derby last night. Like, don't get me wrong. I have got the greatest job in the world. They actually pay me to watch that stuff. That's how good my job is. They pay me to watch that stuff. They just don't pay me enough to watch that stuff. Honestly, Home Run Derby could not be any more faded and it could not interest me any less than it does. Even Major League Baseball knows that. Why do you think they bribed the winner with a mill to do it? Almost nobody wants to see it, much less actually take part in it. And no, I'm not here to hate. I'm here to state the obvious, right? How utterly ridiculous is Home Run Derby at this point? How faded is it? How tired is it? How played out is it? In fact, at this point... I don't even get the point of it. Like, why does the league even do it? They know it sucks. That's why they keep changing the rules and bribing the participants. You've essentially got like these speed rounds where you've got like 90-year-old guys up on the bump tossing lollipops one after another and hitters are trying to cram about 400 swings into three minutes, leaving them absolutely spent and sucking wind. When have you ever seen a major leaguer out of breath when they leave the batter's box? And don't tell me there's any strategy either to this thing. The strategy is hit more home runs than the other guy. It really doesn't need to be any play-by-play or analysis because it's always the same. Hey, hey, you know what has to be done here? You know what the play is here? You know what the tactic is here? You know what the strategy is here? Hit the ball. fence. Like, saying something sucks is not a take, but the Home Run Derby sucks, and that is my take, and it's been my take, or at least it was my take until Shohei showed up, and I'm guessing I'm not alone there. I'm guessing there are a lot of other people who watched their first Home Run Derby in years, or maybe their first ever last night, just to check out the living legend, and no, he didn't win, and no, it didn't even matter. He was still the star of the show. Dude was what he always is, freaking electric. That's how you know this guy's special. Even when he doesn't succeed, it's still amazing. It's still must-see TV. And last night was just the start of his turn in the spotlight because tonight he's going to be on the mound as the American League starting pitcher. And he's going to bat leadoff. And let me repeat that for a minute. Because that's a sentence that comes around like once every 100 years. Shohei Otani is going to be the starting pitcher for the American League. And he's going to bat leadoff. He's starting the All-Star game as a pitcher and as a leadoff hitter. They changed the rules of the game so he could do this. That's what you do when somebody comes in and changes. No, hell, breaks the game completely. They just changed the freaking rules for that guy. That'd be like some super freak showing up today in the association and them having to raise the basket to 11 feet because he was so much better than everybody else because nobody else could do a damn thing to stop him. That's Otani. There are rules for one guy, and he deserves every bit of it. They're making rules for one guy because it really is mind-melting. It's insane. I mean, I don't even know what the analogy would be like. It would be like, I don't know, Tom Brady starting the Pro Bowl and dropping back to pass, and then Brady putting his hand in the dirt and rushing the passer in the very next series. That's how insane that is. Baseball, (laughs) baseball, baseball is not a sport that you play two ways as a pro. Like, I know it happens in high school all the time, and even in college some of the time, but in the majors, never I mean, forget about it. You have to specialize. You have to focus on one thing because everybody else is focusing on one thing. And they're really damn good at that one thing. Not Otani. 
He's so damn good at two totally different things. Like tonight, this guy is going to dig into the batter's box and he's going to face Max Scherzer. But then he's going to turn around and toe the rubber and face Fernando Tatis Jr. Like, is that any good? Or does that even make any sense? He was the face of the home run derby last night. He's going to be the face of the All-Star game tonight. He's the face of the sport right now. And it really is awesome. Like, this guy is the best thing to happen to baseball in I don't know how long. Seriously, it's not even an expression. I genuinely do not know the last time MLB had something this amazing happening. You tell me. How long has it been? When was the last time you saw something this amazing? Like, ever? When was the last time baseball had a player or a team that made you stop exactly what you were doing just to watch? I mean, Fernando Tatis? Sure. Maybe. Barry Bonds? Not really. The McGuire-Sosa home run chase? I mean, that was pretty awesome. But now we know that they were juiced to the gills when they were doing it. So that taints that. This is a guy doing things on a nightly basis that have never been done before. He's making people, how about this? He's making people pay attention to baseball in April and May and June. The three hardest months for that sport to get any attention. And this guy's got fans sobbing near the team bus. Just hoping to get a glimpse of him. And again, we're not just talking about a guy who can go both ways. We're not talking about some thumber on the mound. Some guy who's up there dealing pus. We're not talking about some slappy at the plate. This guy is throwing triple-digit heat and cranks 500-foot bombs. Ding. Thank you. This guy leads the major league in home runs by five. He's practically lapping the field at the midway point. And then on top of that, he's striking out more than one guy for every inning that he pitches. He's like that elite high school player in your area who absolutely dominates everybody. You know, the kid who's going to be a major league pitcher or hitter, and he's clowning a bunch of kids who are future accountants and sales reps. Except Shohei's doing that to actual major league pitchers and hitters. Like, there's not another league for this guy to go to or step up to. This is it. These are the very best players on the planet at this time, and he is so far ahead of them. I mean, I know I said that he was special a few moments ago, but even that doesn't cut it. Special doesn't do this guy justice. There are generational players, and then there's Shohei. Because right now, the only person you can compare him to is Babe Ruth. And as Yonder Alonso said yesterday, he didn't see Babe Ruth play. I didn't see Babe Ruth play. I'm betting nobody listening to this show got to see Babe Ruth play. And there's a good chance that the next time another Shohei or Ruth comes along, we will not be around to see it. That's why this is awesome. And if you've got any complaint about this guy, if you have any issue with this guy, any complaint with this guy, man, that's on you. Because this guy is single-handedly saving the sport. The proverbial, if you have a problem with Shohei, you got a much bigger problem with yourself. He's not the problem. You are. Because what this guy's done in the first half of the year is the most amazing baseball feat that I've ever seen in my lifetime. And your lifetime. Hell, our kids' lifetime. Our kids' kids' lifetime. We should be hitting our knees every single night and saying thank you for the chance to see it. Because believe me, we will never see it ever again. Also, one more key point, because oftentimes I'll come out here and I'll give you a really smart take, and you'll be like, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Here's what I want to talk about, Rome. I-, I know where you're going. I know where you're going with this. If it sounds like I'm completely neglecting Pete Alonso winning back-to-back home run derbies, it's unintentional, and I'm not. That's just how enormous Otani is. Much love to Alonzo for putting on a show and another example of jungle karma. Why do I say jungle karma? Because that dude was on last Friday. Not with me, but with the icon that is Brian Weber. I don't think that it was a paid interview. Nor do I think that Brian had to chip off any of his beloved McRibbies 
to get him to do, to do it. Out of here! And here's what I'm really getting to that I know you clones want to talk about. While I'm on the topic of McRibs, notice that in the course of that take, a good take, an emphatic take, an enthusiastic take, hell, a 10-minute take, Notice there was not one single reference or mention of one Ken Griffey Jr. Yes, I saw Griffey taking pictures of Shohei. If Griffey is making a big deal about you, you know you're big. You know you're enormous. But... That does not mean that I want your Ken Gravy Jr. tweets. Nor do I want your Griffey Jr. Looks like he put Griffey Sr. on a cracker and ate him. Nor do I want your Griffey had Jay Buhner for dessert. Nor do I want you to tell me that Griffey ain't tripping about wearing a shirt in the pool. Nor do I need any of you clones to tell me that the camera adds 10 pounds, but you didn't know that holding the camera adds 10,000. No, Griff was not with me at Eagle River. And no, I do not need you saying, hey, Rome, the broadcast used that fat booth app on Griff's face during coverage, right? I don't need that. I don't want that. I don't know if they did or if they didn't. I just know I don't give a damn. I don't give a damn what this guy's done in retirement because he was such an amazing player between the lines. I don't care if this guy has put on 10 or 50 since he retired. It's not what this is about, clones. This is about Otani, period. Stop ruining the moment eyes on the prize and not whether or not Griffey is looking to dethrone Joey Chestnut at the next Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. Eyes on the bleeping prize. Stop wrecking my good takes. Stop wrecking my good show. We're not going there. We are not going there. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkled donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms that your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Learn about these investment products and more at Investor.gov, your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. Their head coach is Jamal Mosley. Jamal, it is great to have you on the show. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you doing today? Man, I'm great. I am just great. So it's been a few hours since you were officially introduced as the Magic's new head coach, how does that feel? I mean, does that feel pretty real to you at this point, or maybe is it still a little bit surreal? It's going to stay surreal for quite a while. I truly believe that. It's, 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 it's all coming fast, but it's a beautiful thing. It really is. All right, so your name had come up for other head coaching jobs in the past, but you had told The Athletic that, quote, you started to sense that there was a little bit of joy to where it was going, end of quote, in terms of the process with the Magic. So what happened during that process that made you feel like this might be different and, in fact, there might even be some joy? Well, you know, the multiple times that you talk um, and you start to get a sense of how the relationship is going, uh, I think that's when it turns into something that you feel you start to feel good about just because the relationship, it opens up more in the levels of communication. A couple of questions may be different, but it just the sense of that just started to feel a little bit more real. Orlando Magic head coach Jamal Mosley is joining us. I could see where that could happen. Let me ask you this. I want to go back to early April. When you were with the Mavericks, Rick Carlisle was going to miss a game due to a positive COVID test. It later turned out to be a false positive, but at that same time, he was not able to coach, so you stepped in. It was a really unique night. What do you remember about that game? Uh, I remember getting a call and just thinking, like, are you okay, one. And then, two, it was... It was it was that became surreal as well 
but it gave it opportunity to just, you know, get out there and flow, be myself, and let those guys just get up and down and play, play, you know, aggressive defense and get after it a lot, which was great. You know, for instance, you might tell me why it was surreal, but it seemed from the outside looking in, it was surreal in the sense that you led that team to a 99-86 to win, and then afterwards in the locker room, you've got guys dumping water on you. It seemed like they were so genuinely happy for you and that it was so personal. Carlisle told The Athletic that these guys were celebrating like they won Game 7 of the World Series. So what did that particular moment mean to you? That was a lot, and it goes back to exactly what someone said about the you know the positive things coming out. It's it's the joy that you know you want guys to have playing the game of basketball. You know you want guys to just love being in the gym and love competing, love playing for each other, and that's what it felt like because each one of those guys you know you have a relationship with, and it's about them and it's not about me. So when it was when it when it happened after the game, that's what it felt like that they were overjoyed. Jamal Mosley is the new head coach of the Orlando Magic. I'm glad you mentioned the word relationship because Carlisle loved that moment so much that he sent it to the Magic's president of basketball ops, Jeff Weltman, and the GM, John Hammond, when they were looking for a new head coach because he says that that is what it shows, the relationships that you have developed with your players. Like, I know relationships are at the core of coaching and that philosophy, but how do you go about developing those relationships, and then why are they so important? You start out, I mean, developing a relationship like any different thing. Trust has to be earned. You have to genuinely care for guys. I think you have to find out what they're interested in and dig into that. You know, that we all have basketball in common. That We get that. We can all talk about X's and O's and plays and games, but what makes a guy tick? What, do guy, what does a guy enjoy doing? What does he do when he's not on the court? I think that's important. I think you've got to find out that out about guys and, and really care about their, the betterment of them. Jamal Mosley joining us. One more thing about Rick Carlisle. In, fa- in fact, a couple of things, because this, this is a big Rick Carlisle house. I, I think really highly mm-hmm. of him. He said something to The Athletic about you. Quote, I see him as the basketball version of a young Mike Tomlin from the Pittsburgh Steelers, a natural leader of men who builds strong, meaningful relationships. Players will love his energy, his enthusiasm, his knowledge for the game. I just had this belief that players will not allow him to fail. End quote. Like, that's really, really high praise. What's it mean to you to hear that from him? And then how would you describe your relationship with Carlisle? He is fantastic. He has always been teaching me, talking to me. His transparency and everything has always been good. Um, and that's what's prepared me so much to be a head coach because he's allowed me to use my passion and that energy but, and the relationships and build that to how he, how he does things. So it was like it was a good combination of how it worked. Um, and like the relationship with him has always it's been good, like because he he allows me to be me and the energy he he's taught me so much. Like I said, I'm a fan because of his mentorship that he's given me and taught me the little things that you might not see in certain situations. All right, so it's really clear what you think about him and what you've learned from him, but you've also coached with guys like George Carl and Tim Gergerich. What about the two of them? What did you learn from them along the way? What was that like? That was my first introduction to player development, to adjustments on the fly, to letting coaches just coach and be them and let them figure it out and grow on their own. I mean, George was a master at adjustments, master at getting guys to just figure different things out. Coach Gerd just taught me everything I know about player development, and that's where the relationship part started because he was doing things that weren't drills but he was getting guys better and guys were doing things that they weren't normally comfortably doing, but it was just, and he made them go hard at it. You know, I remember him just being out there guarding, watching them guard Gary Payton, you know, from that to guarding Kenyon Martin. And he's down there guarding Nene, guarding Mello. And, you know, then he throw me out there. Those things were amazing to watch. And Jamal, my first exposure, and I love George Carl, but my first exposure to Gerg was when I was at UC Santa Barbara and he worked with Tark at UNLV and they broke out that amoeba defense. And that was all Gerg, right? Like, like people yeah. love Tim Gergerich. Well, like, what made him so unique other than his willingness to get out on the floor and get into guys? Because he was beloved. Exactly what I was telling you before about the relationships. 
he doesn't do it for himself. He does it for the player to get better, and he does it for the game of basketball. That's what it's about for him. It's about giving back to the game that has given so much to us, and that's who he is. Jamal Mosley is the head coach of the Orlando Magic. I love your background, actually. Like, if we were to go back a little bit, you were born in Milwaukee. You played your high school ball in San Diego. So when did you first get hooked on hoops, and then what was it about the game that you liked so much initially? Um, I got first hooked on hoops in high school when I moved to San Diego. My uh, high school coach, John O'Neill, introduced me to, to the game and just the fundamentals of the game. We had another coach there that helped out in Ed Georgian. And they were just big in the fundamentals. So they just started from the, the ABCs of the game. And that really got me wanting to work and learn and just get better and better every single day. And the way he had us working was, you know, he was a fan of Gergerich before I even knew who Gergerich was in those UNLV days. So we had a lot of the defensive systems from them early. And so that's kind of walking me into the, just the work ethic, the defensive side of the ball, and just getting better fundamentally every day. Now, so you went to Colorado, and then you played mm-hmm. overseas. And then in 2004, your mother passed away. I'm curious, what kind of an impact did she have on you as a person? And then how did her passing impact your entire life? As a person, you know, I am who I am today because of her, because of how selfish she was because of how her vision for bigger things and better things always stayed within me. Um, she was always about other people, making sure they were okay, making sure you could lift them up and make them better. So I think that's helped me so much in my basketball career as a coach, um, but just more along the lines of how I treat and deal with people because it's so important. Um, it, trend, it started my basketball or my coaching journey because – I was overseas when she started to get sick and I didn't want to be away for so long. And when I came back and things occurred and then I, you know, you're kind of lost at that moment. You're at a crossroads. So when I hit that crossroads, I had, you know, my friend in Colorado, Ronnie Gray, you know, asked me to come stay with him. And once that happened, you know, then George gets a job in Denver. John Welch is there. You know, Gerg is there. They bring me on. From that moment, it was just take off, unpaid intern for two years, and then figured it out. In fact, I don't want to gloss over that point. Like the point that you just made, you came home and you were at a crossroads and you weren't sure what to do, and you stayed with a friend in Denver. You just said you worked as an unpaid intern for two years. Is that right? Yeah. Well, well George paid me out of his pocket a little bit for like the second year, but that first year, I didn't make a, a, a dime. I remember driving 45 minutes up to from where I lived in Parker to the Pepsi Center and just trying to figure out what I was going to do. But I just kept showing up, just keep showing up, keep showing up. Um, and I kept showing up, following what Gerg said to do, figuring it out, keeping my mouth shut and just working. And, you know, just slowly but surely, kept, I got a little opportunity after opportunity. It was player development, video scouting, advanced scouting, learning the game. You know, that was that it just step by step, but daily reminding myself just to keep going. And consistent. And now you're the head coach of the Orlando Magic. I want to ask you about this too, because this fascinates me. Legend has that you've done some MMA training. How did you first get into that? And what do you like about that? What do you get out of that? It's the conditioning, you know, it's the conditioning, but it's more the conditioning of the mind. Uh, that's the biggest thing for me. I have, you know, I have friends that do it. Uh, the, the studio I was in in Dallas for the longest t- for some time was was a great place for this MMA. You know, it just it teaches. I think it's more the mindset of teaching guys to do hard things, to be uncomfortable, to be resilient. And then the one thing, you know, you talk about it when you've got to compete against guys. It's there's a level of humility that you have to have. You've got to respect your opponent. But you also got to know that you've trained well enough to, to, to win. You know, it's, it's so interesting when you say, like, you learn humility and you learn respect. I, this is just kind of sidebar. Like, Conor McGregor, if I broke my leg and somebody interviewed me, that might not be my finest moment. He generally is lost with a lot of class. There wasn't a lot of respect. Did you watch that fight and did you see him? And what, what were your thoughts when this guy's sitting in the canvas with a busted leg talking about the guy who just beat him down again and his wife sliding into his DMs? That was not the most respectful thing. 
No, I, see, I didn't watch all of it. I didn't see. The, I didn't finish seeing the rest of it. You know, I was in in transition and moving around at that point. And listen, I know it's unfair for me to put you in that spot. I actually apologize for putting you in that spot, but I just think it's really interesting because you're right. That sport is all about respect and humility. But I, I retract that. All right, I shouldn't have done that. What can Orlando Magic fans expect to see from a Jamal Mosley led team? I think they can expect to see passion. Joy on the floor for playing, competing hard every single night, playing together, um, and just really just playing with that level of passion, but competing every single night with a mentality to go out and make other teams uncomfortable and playing together freely on offense. Hey, you want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back that you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically with no limit on how much you can earn. Now, how amazing is that? In fact, even more amazing when you consider all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes, discover.com slash yes, 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations do apply. I do want to talk USA basketball, though, really quickly. So they lost to Nigeria on Saturday night, but at that time, nobody really freaked out. And if people were freaking out because of that, it was essentially, you know, just kind of a look at me moment. Let's spew some lava. Let's scream. But to me, that was not a big deal. I mean, honestly, how many people were even really paying attention to that exhibition? Again, that was not anywhere close to the biggest sporting event on that night. And then secondly, everybody pretty much acknowledged that the American team had just gotten together a few days earlier. They were still feeling each other out. They were getting to know each other. Never mind that Nigeria has a grand total of two Olympic wins ever. They've won two games. Not two medals. They have two wins total. And that the U.S. beat Nigeria by 83 at the 2020 Olympics. Five years ago, even, they beat them by 44 in an exhibition. And just so we're clear, none of this, none of this is to slight Nigeria. Last thing I want to do is get on their radar. I've seen their social media game. And by the way, not, it's not that I'm afraid of them. There's no reason to slight them. Mike Brown is doing a hell of a job with them. They have come a long way. But there's coming a long way from getting beaten by 83, and then there's actually beating Team USA. But again, that'll happen. It's one game. It's an exhibition. It can happen, I guess. I mean, maybe, possibly. But the only good news here is, That loss to Nigeria on Saturday was that the Americans didn't have to wait that long for a chance to get right, to bounce back. In fact, they only had to wait until last night to get back on the court, and they get that opportunity to bounce right back and get right against Australia. Well, that went horribly. Australia, 91. USA, 83. So that bounce back was a face plant. You can drop an exhibition game, I guess. I mean... USA basketball never actually does. But I guess that could happen, right? Once, but twice, in less than a week, not good. Not good. Below not good. Below not good. USA is now 54-4 and in exhibition games since 92. Two of those losses have come since Saturday. I mean, that's the sound of alarms going off everywhere. And again, that's not to slight Australia. They've got plenty of talent, some really high-end NBA talent. But it's not the same talent that the U.S. has. And they made the Americans look like a mess in the fourth quarter. I'm not going to be some jingoistic panic button guy, but the USA is not guaranteed a gold medal every time they show up at the Olympics. And I know there's so much talent on this roster, and they're still the favorites to win it all. I know all the caveats about the Americans not having much time to practice together and that the international game is different than the NBA game. I know all those things. I know all of that, and I'm still going to say, holy crap, they looked terrible last night, especially in the fourth quarter. Man, sloppy, chaotic. They were a mess. 
And when they needed buckets down the stretch, not only could they not get them, they didn't even look like they knew how to get them. Not only did they look like they had not played together before, they looked like they hadn't really played the game of basketball before. And they looked completely gassed. I know it's been a brutal NBA season. I know guys have been put through the ringer. I know they're spent. I know they're tired. I know it's only an exhibition game. And yes, the roster does have issues. The lack of a true point guard and true international style center. That's an issue. They don't have that. They've been killed on the glass in both games. Last night, the Aussies were getting to the rim whenever they wanted to with ease. And I know why there are issues on the roster. Because three all-NBA centers in the league are international players. I could see where guys might turn down the opportunity to play this year after the last 12 months. And speaking of the last 12 months and how grueling the last 12 months were, didn't the league cram the season into such a short window with such a short turnaround so they could make sure that NBA players would be available for the Olympics. Wasn't that the reason they did that? And this is the result you get? I mean, damn. I also understand that Devin Booker, Chris Middleton, and Drew Holiday are on their way. But USA basketball should not be waiting for reinforcements to come save them. And if they're banking on the three guys who have played the most minutes in the playoffs to come and bail them out, what the hell kind of approach is that? What does that tell you? I know all the guys who aren't there, and I know why they're not there. But you know who is there? Kevin Durant. And it was only a few weeks back that everybody was going on and on about how this guy was the best player on the planet. Yeah, he hasn't looked quite like that, has he, in the past two games? This guy went 4-for-17 against Nigeria, 6-for-13 against Australia, and the offense did look like a mess down the stretch. When the game was still within reach and they needed a bucket, he didn't exactly put that team on his back, did he? And again, we're talking about the Americans needing a bucket down the stretch to make the game tight with the Aussies. Again, I'm not some jingoistic homer. And I know the rest of the world is playing really good basketball these days. But to me, it's pretty incredible to think that the Americans need to find somebody to put the team on their back to eke out a win against Australia in an exhibition right after losing to Nigeria in an exhibition. Like, there was a time when the U.S. would just plow right through exhibition games in the first half and then put it in cruise control in the second half and clown and joke and laugh. Now these guys are playing pressure-packed minutes down the stretch, and they're playing them pretty terribly. And again, this is not just a matter of losing last night or Saturday night. Spin back even further. They've lost four of their last five international games. This Olympic team was supposed to be the mini redeem team for what happened at the last international tournament. Remember? Remember what happened last time? They crashed out in seventh place. I know these games are only exhibitions. I know they don't count. It's a damn good thing they don't. Because if this were the actual Olympics, the U.S. would already be out. And the teams they're playing know it. Joe Ingles had this to say after the game. No disrespect or anything to that. They're a hell of a team. Obviously, the, the guys they've got on their, their roster and Pop standing up there is always nice to see. But well, we came in here expecting to win the game, and that's what we did. That's it, man. That is what they did. And the Nigerian basketball Twitter feed was bringing the heat, too. Remember I mentioned you don't want to get on the wrong side of them? They tweeted at the official Australian basketball account. This is so good. They tweeted at the official Australian basketball account, quote, welcome, and added that legendary Roy Williams locker room entry dance. Man, that's a vicious throwdown right there. And it's perfect, and it's well-deserved. I'm not saying the Americans are done, and I know there is time between the Olympics, but man, the alarms are sounding. The trends are bad. Don't be surprised if they do get bounced. I wouldn't be. Not based on what I'm seeing right now. And what I'm seeing right now is really pretty bad. And they're running out of time. 
Australia is not a bunch of slappies. They got some players now. Aaron Baines, Joe Ingles, Matthew Delavadova, and of course, one legend in Patty Mills. Patty freaking Mills. Patty freaking Mills in international competition is like playoff Rondo in the postseason. Kind of like the opposite of pandemic. Playoff P. Paul George. My man, Patty Mills. International Patty Mills. He's kind of like Iverson, Marbury, and Gary Payton all rolled into one. Practically a young Brian Shaw in the Thunderdome. That's how damn it, how dominant he is. And you knew, didn't you know last night, after that second loss in just a few days, that Pop would have his grouch, the grouch level, cranked all the way up. No, no, good. You know, let me let me also answer that question. You know, you asked the same sort of question, the same family of question last time, uh, where you assume things that are not true. When you just mentioned, you know, blowing these teams out, that's never happened. So I don't know where you get that. Can I finish? Can I finish? Can I finish my statement? Can I can I finish my statement? When you talk, you, you just told me that it's not true, and I'm telling you your average margin. Are you going to let me finish my statement or not? So you'll be quiet now while I talk, and then I'll listen to you. When you make statements about in the past just blowing out these other teams, number one, you give no respect to the other teams. And I talked to you last time about the same thing. We've had very close games against four or five countries in all these tournaments. So the good teams do not get blown out. There are certain games that might happen in one of the tournaments in the World Championship, the Olympics, where somebody gets blown out. But in general, nobody's blowing anybody out for the good teams. So when you make a statement like that, it's like you assume that's what's going on, and that's incorrect. Wow. Grouch much? Man, I haven't heard that guy sound like that in years. Years. Listen to Pop. I love this whole thing about Tua. Can I finish my statement? Be quiet. I mean, I was just waiting for the STFU. He be quieted him. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more. All with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak to a Dell Technologies advisor today. Trey Turner is my guest. Trey, it's good to have you back. How are you? I'm great, man. How about yourself? Good, good. Good to visit with you. I'm curious. You signed with Pittsburgh last month. Before we get into that, can you kind of lay out the process? Like, what was it like for you to be a free agent? Was it nerve-wracking or was it kind of fun, kind of exciting? Uh, I I just used it as a time for me to get better and focus on anything and everything that I wanted to focus on. Usually, you know, you have OTAs, you have mini camps, and uh, you, you kind of follow a regimen or, or what the team wants you to do, and, and you kind of stay on pace with that. But this time I was able to kind of um, create my own OTAs or mini camps, so to speak, able to get some work, some good work in with uh, Jackie Slater. Um, I was able to get some good strength and conditioning in with my guys in New Orleans. And I just think it was a, a good process for me. You know, it was different, something new, but uh, I, I made it work. Man, I'm not surprised at all that you went there, that your answer was, I just used it as an opportunity to get better. I would imagine you would answer almost any question that I were to ask you by saying, I used it as an opportunity to get better. I'm going to get there in a minute. You mentioned Jackie Slater. Now, I haven't talked to Jackie Slater in a number of years. He used to come on the show quite a bit back in the day. Man, can you, for those who do not know, can you talk for a moment about what an amazing player he was and a leader and what it's like to work with him even today? Man, before before he's an amazing player, he's a phenomenal person. Uh, just a great guy to be around. Somebody who's um, full of knowledge, um, gives you everything that he has. Um, but second to that, he's a Hall of Famer. I don't think I have to say too many words after that. 
uh, not too many people get to have a gold bus and put on a gold jacket. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, that speaks, that speaks volumes itself. He's just a great guy, man. Somebody just full of wisdom that I could just learn from and just soak it all in. He is, man. He's like, he is larger than life. It's kind of a cliche, but he is one of those guys who is. All right, so what about the opportunity with the Steelers? What was it about that that appealed to you so much, and why do you think that's such a good fit? Uh, Hard-nosed football, man. Uh, I played in Carolina for a number of years. I was able to play those guys, uh, just able to see how they play, how they respond. And, um you know, I, I think Coach Tom is a great coach, and I, I'm just excited to be there. I'm excited to run the ball. I'm excited to get with Ben and throw some touchdowns, but I'm going to say it again. I'm excited to run the ball, man. I, I think that will be something that's key and pivotal for the team, and I think that's uh, something I excel at, so I'm, I'm excited. Trey Turner joining us. I was going to ask him about running the ball because you have established yourself around the league as a dominant run blocker. You know, fans like to spend a lot of time focusing on pass blocking. I get that. But what does it take to be a dominant run blocker in that league? You know, um, when you got guys with their ears pinned back on the other side and they're teeing off on the ball and, you know, they're trying to get sacks and, you know, look pretty and all that, it's cool, right? But when you're able to hit somebody in the mouth, play after play, and it's like a body blow, a jab, a body blow, and you softening people up. And them, them two and those three and those four yards turn into 15 and to 20 and to, you know, to, to 30, 40-yard runs. That's that's really what the game is, in my opinion, man. And uh, I feel like if you don't have a good running game, if you can't go out there and deliver those blows, you can't open a passing game up. So I think the run starts it all. All right. So, like, when you take that one step further, what's it feel like physically, even mentally, when you get out and you pull and you get in some space and you can line a dude up and really deliver a huge block? What's that feel like? It feels great. <laughs> When you're able to get out in space, man, you're able to maneuver and, and go out there and take somebody out. Uh, it feels pretty good, man. Um, I feel like I, I pride myself on being able to run in space. I pride myself on being able to go and hit people in space and uh, not being not be afraid to you know to to hit somebody. And that's really what it's about, man. I, I think that's that's the initial start of football: going out there, show the pads, and, and helmet. You know. Uh, and just hitting somebody. So uh, I'm excited that I get the opportunity to do that. Trey Turner joining us to get the opportunity with the Steelers. You know, last season was challenging and frustrating in the sense that you had to deal with some injuries. Man, it's like, I feel like everybody I talk to, I have this question at some point during the interview. Like, what was that like for you to go through and how frustrating is it to do all those things that you know you're supposed to do, you can't control it, getting hurt's part of the game, but still you can't go out there and rejoin that fight. What was What was that like for you? Man, it's always a silver lining that I'm gonna speak from. Man, um, last year was was a, was a good bit of adversity for me, but uh, you know I, I've been blessed, man. I've been able to be in the league on my eighth season. I've been able to be, go to five Pro Bowls, and I've been able to stay primarily healthy for the most part. Um, and that's something I pride myself on. Um, it's just uh, it just I guess it happens, you know. It's a part of the game, so I just took it in stride. You know, it didn't go the way that I wanted to go, but I'm just glad I had this opportunity to. To put on put on tape what I really want to put on tape and actually be out there and I feel good I feel healthy and I just want to stay healthy and do what I need to do on the field. You know, Trey, you just mentioned it. It's your eighth year in the league. When you and I have talked in the past, we talked about how young you were when you got into the NFL. So you're entering your eighth season, but you're only 28. So yeah. how different are you now as a player versus when you first came in? Oh uh, man, I, I, I spoke about working with Jackie Slater. I I was so much just about uh, athletic ability and, uh, you know, just my physical attributes. I think was what I'm trending to more, toward now is more mental, going into games with uh, with more mental clarity than I had before. And I think that just speaks to my, my aging in the league and being here. Um, but going, like I said, going into my eighth season, but still young and still 28. So if I could just put that together mentally, and also bringing that physical attribute, I mean, I feel like I can only get better. All right, so which brings me to a similar point, but somebody different. You mentioned Jackie Slater, but somebody else you've worked with is trainer Albert Brock, and he was talking yeah. about training and life, and he asked you why you're so motivated now after everything you've already accomplished, and you said, because it's bigger than me. Lay that out for me. What do you mean by that? Uh, man, I have little cousins that's in high school. I have a... Uh, Plenty of friends that's at 28, 27, whatever you want to call it, in life that's still uh, searching for their 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 why, if, if, so to speak. So um, I feel like when people get to a certain level, they think, okay, well, this is it. Like, I'm done. 
I feel like it's so much more to tap into. Um, and it is bigger than me because I have so many people that look up to me that watch me. And not only watch me, they just expect. I, want, I don't even want to say expect. They just look to me to give them that confidence. If I could continue doing it, they could continue doing it. If I could, you know, exceed expectations, so they, so can they. And uh, I think it's just about touching your, your community. Uh, a lot of people try to reach out to the where I try to start with a pond or a lake, so to speak. If I could, if I could throw a rock and I could get a ripple effect starting with the people that's closest to me, and then it spreads out from now on, then hey, I, I feel like I've done my job. I like that. Trey Turner joining us, a guard for the Steelers. You've also made the point that it's not about the money. Now, let me be real for a minute. Whenever somebody says it's not about the money, Trey, to me it seems like it's about one thing, the money, except not always. And you say it's not about the money, it's about legacy. And when you say that, I believe you. What's the legacy that you want for yourself? I just want to be remembered as a guy that that did it his way. You know, I didn't have to to bend the rules. I didn't have to uh, sway or, or conform to something that wasn't me. I feel like everything that I present, everything that, that, that I stand for and everything that I've shown has been authentic. Uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, to, to make, you know, uh, some, some bread. And, um, you know, it comes with it. You know, I feel like high play comes with high pay. So I do what I'm supposed to do on the field. It, it'll come. Uh, but my legacy, you know, nobody always, nobody remembers the contract. They remember what you did on the field. And they also remember how you treat people and what you did off the field. So I feel like that that speaks volumes more than the green. I'm curious, like, you know, people are looking to you. You know, people are looking at you. You know, people are watching you. People are getting inspiration from you. I'm kind of curious, who are the people you look to? Who are the people who motivate and inspire you? I have two beautiful parents that wake up every day and go to work. Not because they have to, because they want to. So I, I don't feel like I need much motivation than that. I mean, what about that, right? Like, how much of your success is about that you just love the grind? You love the process. You love doing the hard work. And I'm talking about the hard work that people don't see. Yeah, I'm I'm just a competitor. I think that's that's what it is. I mean, you always have your hard days. You have your days you don't want to do it. You have your days where, you know, you you think twice about it. But, I mean, if somebody tells you they don't, then uh, I have to question that. But I think for me, it's just about competing. At this point, I've been competing with myself. Um being a better, a better version of myself. Now I get to go compete against other guys. and I hadn't seen other people. Or I hadn't had somebody else to hit in, in a few months. So I'm, I'm eager to do that. Um, it's just competition though, man. I think, I think that's something that's been bred in me since I was young. Uh, I'm from New Orleans. So competition is a huge thing out here. And, um, I come from a, a good lineage of people in, in high school, and then I think they would say the same, man. It's, it's all about competition. I mean, I think everybody's good. I just think I'm just a step better. Mm, I like that, too. Really quickly, I'm going to ask you about Louisiana and New Orleans in one second, but what you just said, I'm really curious, Trey. I don't, I don't know that everybody appreciates this as much as I do, but how much of this is about you competing against the guy in front of you, and then how much of this is about you competing with you? It's, it's more about me versus me because right. if I go into a game with a plan, I'm not playing off of somebody else. I'm making them play off of me. And that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm learning in my years that it's more so about what I'm going into a game and do versus what somebody else is doing. I'm not I'm not reacting to what they're doing. I'm making them react to, how I, to what I'm doing. So it's just about a perspective and a and a, just a thought process and, um, you know, just evaluating things. I used to work out with a guy, Trey, they would tell me the same thing all the time. Like, they, it's not a matter of you having to deal with them. They have to deal with you. Or it's your right. job to make it so that they're not having – you're not thinking about dealing with them. they got to deal with you. So, finally, what about New Orleans? Like, you are from New Orleans. You played your college ball at LSU. Man, there are so many great, great players to come out of New Orleans and the state of Louisiana. How would you describe high school football in Louisiana? Uh, competitive. I, I know I keep saying that word, but it's very competitive. Very high strung, um, a sway of emotions. I mean, you have to think New Orleans is a small city, uh, so everybody knows everybody. You know, we all shop at the same grocery stores, we all go to the same gas station. So, you know, you you see your competition and you see who you're facing um, on for the most part. And to be honest, most of us down here are related to each other one way or one way or not. So, it's it's always that. I'm better. Uh, I'm better than you feeling, and I think that's great. And I think it just gives us this uh, this chip 
I don't know why, but it, it gives us this chip to just go out and prove. Even even people that are, are doing it at a high level still have that chip, and I think that's what makes at least that come from this area, uh, not even New Orleans, but the Louisiana alone. I think that's what makes us different. God, dude, I'm trying to let you go, but I love that notion of a chip. I mean, it's one thing when you don't have very much and you have that chip and that chip drives you, but then you get to the show and then you have success at the show and then you've got some money in the bank. Like, how have you maintained that chip? And have you ever been in danger of losing that chip? Uh, all I know is I didn't make the Pro Bowl last year, so I got work to do. There's always a I chip. Mean, I, can't, I got can't you. Put it no more simply. Yeah, but the thing is, though, dude, but you made five in, the, in your first six seasons. But you're yeah, not thinking about that. You're thinking about the one you didn't make, right? Man, my, I had a high school coach. He, he coaches uh, in college now. His name is David Johnson. He told me this world, well, he started with football, but I, I'm going I'm to correlate it to this world. So what have you done for me lately, world? And uh, at this point in time, I, I, need some, I need to put that work in. So that's what I'm focused on doing. What have you done for me lately? I love it. He's entering his eighth NFL season. And, Trey, this is why I want to get caught up with you again, man. Great to have you back. Thank you very much. Oh, I appreciate, appreciate that conversation. It. I appreciate you. Thank you, boss. You have a good one. Curtis Granderson is my guest. Curtis, it's been a minute or two since you and I last spoke. How are you doing? How is your life right about now? Uh, I'm doing great. and It's excited to be on here. As you talked about that 16-year career, I feel like I've been talking to you from day one of that career, so it's been amazing to see you continue to keep doing your thing and keep letting me come back to chat with you. My man, I appreciate you. That's a really nice thing to say, Curtis. Thank you very much. Now, you announced your retirement last year. I know you're not slowing down at all. You're still really involved in the game, but what's it been like to go without playing and not to be in that clubhouse every single day? It's been fun for me, actually. I've been getting a chance to sit back, chill, and relax. And Chicago's home for me. And I'm getting a chance to enjoy the summer in Chicago. Anyone that's been there always talks about, aren't the winters cold? I go, yeah, they are, but the summers are amazing. And I've been away and didn't get a chance to do that. And the biggest thing I miss from not playing is the travel. So the fact that when I retired, I was chilling and relaxed, and then COVID takes place. I was like, oh, man, I'm not getting a chance to move around a little bit. And now things are slowly starting to open back up. I got a chance to come out here for the All-Star festivities in Denver getting the chance to walk into a stadium as a fan, not a player. So really been enjoying that side of things and looking to check off a couple other stadiums on my list from a fan standpoint and also to eat some concession stand food. My man, you sound great, but you sound like you've always sounded. So take me back to when you were playing. What were the All-Star Game experiences like for you personally? It was fun. It was exciting. It was a little bit overwhelming and exhausting at the same time. Because people forget this is the only time over the course of the season where you have consecutive days off. So you want to try to maximize and get rejuvenated for the second half of the season however you want to enjoy this moment. Friends and family want to come be a part of it. Everybody wants tickets. Everybody wants gear. And you're also getting a chance to rub elbows against some of the best in the game that you might not get a chance to talk to on a regular basis because either you don't play against them or you're just in a different position where your positions don't interact on the field. But it's fun. It's tiring. I was actually in the elevator with Manny Machado just a little bit ago as he's headed to the field for tonight's game. And I said, oh, are you getting ready to head out? What's the plan for the rest of the day? He goes, as soon as this thing finishes, I'm flying home. And that's partly because he wants to take advantage and get some rest for the second half of the season to make that push. But it's a great honor and a privilege to be out there and represent for the whole world to see. So I enjoyed the time I got a chance to get selected to represent. Curtis Granderson is joining us. You know, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, so I'm going to pick my spots. But despite the 16 years and yet such a great career, when you retired, you were asked which team that you identified most with, and you said the Tigers. What was it about your time in Detroit that means so much to you? Well, they gave me my start. You know, Detroit drafted me. There were 29 other teams that passed on me. I was a third-round draft pick, and they were the ones that said, you know what, we want to give you the start and let you go. I went through the minor league system. I made my debut with the Tigers. I made my first all-star game. I went to my first World Series with the Tigers. And I think the proximity, being only a few hours from my hometown in Chicago, was great. It was far enough away so not everybody could come, but it was close enough away so I could see everybody. And the fact that we played in the American League Central against the Chicago White Sox, I got a chance to come home three times a year. So it was a fun way to break into professional baseball, make it to the major leagues, some great relationships I've made from there that I still stay in touch with to this day, such as Marcus Timms, who's now the big league hitting coach for the New York Yankees, Demetri Young, who's one of the players helping us out with the Players Alliance, who was here helping out at our camp, and many others. So 
the Detroit Tigers time, career, the fan base, the entire state. It was a great way to start my career. I love hearing those names. Dimitri Young, that's a great throwback right there. You know, you, you mentioned the Yankees. For instance, you recently sat down with the Yes Network to talk about your favorite memories from your time as a Yankee. One of them, of course, was Derek Jeter's 3,000th hit. What do you remember about that moment? It, the place was packed, and a lot of times you hear, let's go Yankees, and that's where you think what's going on. And it turned into, like, let's go Jeter, and they were so loud with it, and it was awesome. Then he hits the 3,000-hit home run. I'm on deck for it, which is crazy to think about now, that the lineup consisted of Derek Jeter, and then I batted after Derek Jeter. I was the protection for him, basically. You know, I say that jokingly. And then he gets the 3,000 <laughs> so home run. The crowd is going nuts. Everybody's celebrating. And I'm like, okay, right, guys, everyone get off the field. I got a bat now. The game is still going on. Right. But then I had to go up there and face David Price after that. I don't think I got a hit, but... Uh, it was a fun moment to be a part of and glad I got a chance to be teammates with them. See, okay, I'm glad you said that because I was going to say, Curtis, it's one thing, Curtis Granderson, my guest, one thing that you were the guy to protect, Derek Jeter, but like I know you talk with great, great enthusiasm and pride that you could play alongside guys like Jeter and Andy Pettit and Jorge Posada, Mariano Rivera, but the thing is, a reoccurring theme throughout your career is the fact that guys absolutely love playing with you and that you made guys around you better, so what was your approach to being a teammate and a leader. I always felt that no matter what you were on the team, whether this was your first day in the big leagues or this was your 20th day in the big leagues, I wanted to treat you the way that I was hoping that you would treat me. And with respect, you're no different than me. I'm no different than you. I can learn from you and hopefully you can learn from me. And I saw that right away. And I was thankful to Dimitri Young, who I mentioned earlier, because he could have taken me in as a young player and hazed me and made me do all this crazy stuff, but he didn't. He took me out to eat. He talked to me. He told me about how to go about the game, how to prepare, how to start getting ready for it. And I took that with me as I continued to go. I gave that respect back to him. And as I became an older player and played for multiple teams, I made sure I did the exact same thing for all the other teammates I had, no matter where they came from in this world, no matter how much experience they had. And I think that's what made guys kind of gravitate towards me and enjoy playing with me. You know, Curtis, you were also really unusual, and you and I talked about this throughout your entire career, but you were unusual in the sense that you started your foundation in 2007, and you were only a few years into your major league career. And we've talked about philanthropy in the past, but what inspired you to start at such an early age and so early in your career? I realized that the reason I was at that point in my career was because of the community, and the community was big and broad. It was mom and dad. It was the neighbors in the community. It was parents. It was coaches. It was friends and family. All those individuals helped shape and mold me to get to that point of where I was at today. And then now in 2007, I finally have the ability to be able to go ahead and pay it forward to hopefully help other individuals get to where they want to. And it's not just becoming a major league baseball player. Maybe it's becoming the first person in their family to go to college. Maybe it's the first person to go ahead and fulfill one of their dreams and start their own business or, you know, graduate college or get the job that they have been hoping for. But motivating them, guiding them, giving them information to help them succeed, which is what people did for me as far back as I can remember. And that's the reason why I wanted to do it. And Detroit was my second home at that time. So I wanted to start it there. I wanted to get ready to get back there. And I did it all the way up until the time I got traded from there. And every time I came back to play in Detroit, I always tried to find some ways to do some things in the community there. Curtis Granderson joining us. I mentioned off the very top that you are the president of the Players Alliance. For those who do not know, what is the Players Alliance? What's that all about? Who's involved? The Players Alliance comprises of 150 current and former professional baseball players who are all collectively trying to make this game more accessible to kids of color, especially black kids in black communities. But we also want to help out in those communities as well. This last year, over December and January, with everything going on in COVID, we took to the ground, did a 33-city tour over the course of 40 days where we handed out COVID supplies, we handed out food to those in need, and we also provided bats and gloves a lot of these kids for the first time ever receiving their first bit of baseball equipment. And we all are trying our best to just see this game become more diverse and more accessible and more available, not just on the field, but in the front office, scouts, umpires, coaches, fans, players being introduced to this game. And that's the mission of the Players Alliance. And it's not just all about the black players. On Jackie Robinson Day this past year, we asked the current players if they would donate a portion, if not all of their game day salary to help us continue to keep moving forward with our mission. And currently, 8% of the major leagues is black. 
out of 750, if you do the math, you're just around 60 or 70 guys. But out of that ask, we ended up getting 500 players to donate a portion, if not all of their salary. So it wasn't just the black players that are in on this mission. These are all the players from all around the world that definitely want to see this happen. That's so good. Excellent. We're joined by Curtis Granderson. All right, so you mentioned that you want to get back to the ballpark. You want to get some food. Today is National French Friday. You're working with checkers and rallies. What are you doing with those folks? How are you approaching National French Friday? Well, National French Friday, one of my favorite days of the year. I love French fries, and on this day, it's absolutely amazing. If you're at any Checkers or Rallies location across the country, they're going to be selling their fries for a dollar, and that dollar is going to go to No Kid Hungry, which is a great organization that I've partnered with for a very long time with their campaign to try to end childhood hunger. And this last year with COVID, it's affected us in so many different ways, but one of the things that it did is it made it that one in six kids don't know where their next meal is coming from. And you and I know what it's like if we don't get that first meal of the day, we get a little cranky, we get a little edge as we start to get to the middle of the day. But imagine how you start to feel when you don't get that first meal, followed by that second meal, followed by that third meal, and that starts to become a trend. So do your part today. Enjoy getting some French fries. That dollar can help bring 10 meals to kids in need across this country. And you can get some tasty fries and get back in a big way on this national holiday. My man, Curtis Granderson, 16 years in the major leagues, three-time All-Star. I ran down that list of accomplishments. Man, I'm so glad you and I could come together, get caught up, chop it up. Curtis, great to have you back on. Always appreciate you in the conversation. Thank you. Always good chatting with you. And like I said, continue to keep doing your thing. It's always fun listening to you and getting a chance to join with you. Let's go to Chicago. Mark in Chicago. Good to have you, Mark. What's up? Rome, it's good to have you back. Um, I did want to talk a little Wimbledon and, and who the GOAT is after uh, after Djokovic's performance, but I just wanted to respond to Vince up in Wisconsin telling all the Illinois people to stay out of Wisconsin. Vince, you suggested taking a goose, snapping its neck, and flinging it around. That's like some serial killer stuff. I mean, every picture I've seen of people from Wisconsin, they have this dead look behind there, this dead-behind-the-eyes look. It's like Caleb. Every picture you see of him, he's just fat and, you know, dead behind the eyes. It, it's it's ridiculous. So, uh, Vince, you're you're just a weirdo. Don't don't call again. Um, did you watch any w- Wimbledon on Sunday, uh, Jim? Mark, I'm a talk show host. Yes, of course, I watched Wimbledon. I love that. That's always one of my favorite takes. Like, like, hey, Rome, are you watching the NBA Finals? People ask me stuff like that. Did I watch any of the Wimbledon final? Mark, I'm a talk show host. A prominent sports talk show host. Yo, Broham, Wisconsin has TV. They do have TV and phones and internet service, Wi-Fi. Yes, I saw it. Let me say about the Joker. Joker is the GOAT. Joker's got 20 And if you don't believe it now, you will soon. My man somehow, somehow is aging in reverse. My man somehow is turning the clock back. He's spinning the hands the other way, counterclockwise. My man is somehow getting seemingly better at 34. So to answer your question, yes, I did see it. Let's go to Paul's dog, the first ever animal invited to the smack off. Yo, Paul's dog, what's going on? Roll rim room. Welcome back from the basement. Sounds scary down there. Right. Why are you having trouble with Groose crapping on your lawn? Run me at him. I don't care if he is seven foot six, four hundred pounds. I'll chase him away. Hey Groose. Remember wonder what happened to Ralph with the duck? Don't ask. You don't wanna know. Or mad dog speaking Spanish. Hola, amigo. Rasta la vista. Rough me. Rumber out. Wow. The dog is back. Let's go to Studio City. Hey, Beaks, what's going on? Jim, it's uh, it's really great to uh, be part of the jungle again and to hear you, man. That's, I know how you've been doing because I heard about your vacation yesterday. And, um, and, and, and in terms of that, I just want you to let you know I... Uh, I uh, 
I will mentally uh, uh, live vicariously through it because lately I've been through the 10 worst days of my life and I'm not going to get into that, but I just want you to know how much it means to be back in the jungle because I haven't been able to participate in about what, five, four or five months. So yeah, I'm, uh, you know, want to get back in again and, and the, the family will always be part of the fam. But that being said, I got to go on on my boy, uh, Matt in LA here. And this is, this is something that's been coming for a long long time because every time I see him in person or on the phone, he makes excuses for that flip phone that he used to have to call the show, which I've seen personally when I first met him. And then he said he got a new smartphone, which obviously crapped out during the smack off. And, uh, he, he made excuses for that. And he says, he always says, Beaks, I, you know, I'm too, I'm too old for technology, you know? And, and it's like, dude, the other day we literally joined the Buck Rogers in the 25th century when Branson sent that spaceship into, into flight. And it's like, Broham. Two things, Beaks. Good night now.